Hello out there in internet land, and welcome once again to the Dungeons & Dragons podcast. You see before you three podcasters clustered around a bank of four microphones. The fourth microphone would normally be occupied by Michael Robles, but he is not here today. He's out sick. So I am your Dungeon Master Coombe host for our podcast. I'm sort of tempted to present this as a D&D session where I can narrate what you see and what each person's doing, but I think that would just get pretty irritating after a few minutes. So we'll drop that idea and instead head straight on to the meat of our uh, podcast here. We're still going to roll initiative to see who gets to talk, right? Yeah, exactly, right? Turn by turn as an action. You can speak for six (laughs) seconds. Then I stop. (laughs) So it's like someone's saying something really interesting, like they talk for six seconds. Oh, I I do nothing. I pass this turn. Okay, now I (laughs) So with me is Rodney Thompson. Hello. And special guest star this week, Chris Dupuy. Hi. You sound a little nervous. That yeah, was a- <laughs> well, yeah, that, that was a little nervous. Uh, I don't normally do the podcast. I got the invite like an hour ago, so. it's not, We're, we're not going to bust out the Mask of Valor or anything like that. No, do no. you guys know the story of the Mask of Valor? I do, but I don't know if Chris does. I don't. So uh, do you want to tell the story? Do you want me to tell the you, story? You can tell it. Go ahead. So, and I'm telling this like fourth hand now. So this is a story from the days of yeah, TSR. Yeah, because neither of us were there, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? I, I mean, if yeah, I would have been pretty young. That's why I would have a little bit of a child labor law violation. So this is back from the story of the days of TSR, back when apparently um, hazing laws had not yet either existed or extended to workplaces. Right. And physically abusing coworkers was cool. Like it's like the 70s. And you know, it was just like there were no – really there were no laws yet. We had right. just evolved out of like Wild West times. Right. We'd had a World War II. We were in the 70s. Yeah. Then suddenly it's the 70s and people are like, oh, crap. We need a society. So let's make one up. I'm going to guess you were born in the 70s. I was right? born in the 70s. Okay. So basically yeah. everything before the <laughs> 70s, you just have no concept of it, right? I like to think of the 70s as the last decade where like smoking and drinking while you're pregnant were A-OK. No one really cared. Right. It and wasn't actually a health risk. Yeah, then. exactly, Something right? Changed. It yeah. was just a way to be cool. It was just a way to be cool. <laughs> because you're worried if you once you're pregnant of getting that cool kid cred by smoking. <laughs> right. Anyways, meanwhile, the Dungeons and Dragons podcast, uh, <laughs> the Mask of Valor is apparently when they would hire a new person to the design department, um, they had this fencing mask. And if, you've ever, has, if you haven't fenced, basically, it's a mesh wire mask with a very, really fine mesh to make sure like a foil does not sneak through and it could kill you. Like people have been killed in fencing incidents. Right. It's very uncommon, but it has happened. Um, you are, after all, stabbing someone with a long piece of metal. Right. So without the proper safety gear, you could be badly hurt. So apparently what they would do is they would tell someone, look, it's your first day. It's time to don the Mask of Valor. They'd put this fencing mask on someone and tell them they're going to throw darts at the fencing mask. (laughs) Now, the thing with the fencing mask was since it has this mesh, the dart would hit the mesh and stick in, but it wouldn't actually reach your face. Right. So that was they'd get whatever they put the mask on this guy. I think they'd blindfold him or something too, or whatever. Right. Well, you know, you want to protect their eyes just in case a dart. Yeah, gets just in case a dart gets through. <laughs> but apparently, they would just throw like fake darts or or uh, yeah, wadded up pieces of paper, or pieces paper like or that. <laughs> I'm sure I mastered the story. There's probably some guy, someone who worked at TSR right now, is very mad that I've ruined the story by not. Yeah, Steve Winter told it to me the first time, and I, you know, we could have just gone and asked him. But we probably should have just opened the door <laughs> to this office. He's, he's we'll literally right fifty feet from us in right real now. time. So so, Rodney, I see that you have before you a copy of the latest Dungeon Command set. Yes, I do. It's the uh, Blood of Grimsh set. It just came out, in fact. So you and Chris worked on this, right? Uh, Chris and I both worked on it along with uh, Peter Lee. Yeah. All right. So what's interesting about it? Well, so one of the most uh, exciting things about it is this is the first of the Dungeon Command sets that features all new miniatures. Uh, these miniatures are of, uh, obviously, orcs, and there's an ogre and an owlbear and a boar and a werebore. 
But all of these miniatures were created for this set. Uh, and they're actually, we used a process uh, that was new to Dungeon Command on this one where we created a baseline orc and then outfitted that orc in many different ways to create these miniatures. So it's one of the first times where all of the all the orcs in this set or all the miniatures in this set come from, uh, or many of the miniatures come from a common model, uh, which means that they all look so much more alike than any other two miniatures previously. It really gives these guys a feel on the when you put them down on the Dungeon Command board. These all belong together because they were really created to work together. So that's one of the more you know sort of interesting, exciting things about these is that this is a this is a set that was really engineered from the ground up for you know to be a cohesive team to work together uh, visually. I mean, and of course, like all of our sets, they work together. Uh, mechanically, uh, Chris, do you want to talk a little bit about the mechanics behind the orcs? Yeah, the uh, the orcs work on an order deck that's built of strength, constitution, and wisdom. So because of that, they will feed back into some of the other sets that have used uh, those uh, order cards as well. Yeah, finally, that uh, dwarf cleric from the very <laughs> first set, he's finally coming into his own. You know, he, well, he, he did get a lot from the last set, too. True, and he's been very popular. I, yeah. He was one of the most popular ones out of the first set, right. and I was surprised by that. Right, you know, we were all about the uh, dragon knight and right. the dwarf healing all the time. Everyone loves him. Yeah, um, but yeah, the the orcs are they're really hardy. They can just take hits and keep coming at you. Uh, and because of the the boars and the druid, uh, there's a lot of wisdom in the set. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've got uh, some surprising tricks up their sleeve uh, when you field them on the battlefield. Yeah, I think it's a little bit more straightforward set than, say, like the undead, which mess, mess with your graveyard and have a lot more attached cards and stuff like that. These guys, I feel like they are really good at hitting you hard and living a long time. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, it's a pretty simple thing to manage, but at the same time, they do it in a lot of interesting ways. So I think the orcs really satisfy that that big bruiser feel that you get from individual monsters and in other sets. I mean, like the, the Horn Devil is a great example from the Goblin set that's sort of that big bruiser type. This is sort of a set full of nothing but big bruisers. Yeah, they just keep coming at you, and it's a lot of fun to play. Yeah, and, and the Constitution, really this is the first time we've used a lot of Constitution. I guess we had some in, in Undead. We had some in Undead, but yeah. this it, it's been flushed out a little bit more here. Yeah, so you're really going to, I think the, the Orc set is really going to augment your Undead set. You'll use the Strength cards with your Hero set, and of course the Wisdom cards as well. Uh, I think that this not only rounds out the other sets well, but also you're going to want to pull in cards from those sets to even further crank up your orcs. And and now that this sets out, I feel like we have finally enough order cards in the pool that we can really start fielding a con army, a wisdom yeah. army, and you can really start to make constructed war, war bands that are exciting and, and, and really have a specific strategy as you're as you're playing. Yeah, we were talking before the the podcast started about okay, all right, we finally got our sets in. Now it's time for us to start playing some more constructed. So I think that uh, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, this will become a regular lunchtime game for us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited about it. Especially with the orcs, right? I mean, actually, my favorite figure in the new set, and I'll actually go around and ask you guys this too, but my favorite figure in the new set is the ogre. Uh, And the ogre is actually based off of some of the concept art that we were doing for uh, the next iteration of the D&D role-playing game. But I just really like this guy because he looks big and brutish, but he doesn't look, uh, you know, slovenly or cartoonish. He just sort of looks like a... I don't know how to describe it, a big oversized muscular orc in a lot of ways. And I I really like the way this guy's proportioned. Uh, He's got an axe that is bigger than most of the miniatures in this set. (laughs) So I'm really a big fan of this guy. And if I remember correctly, all of the designs for these CAD sculpts came from our our 
work on the art for D&D Next, right? It's everything but the owlbear. The mm-hmm. owlbear is still using an older style. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But otherwise, the the orcs and the the ogre and and the werebore and everything they're they're all based on the concept work we've been uh, doing with the art department to set up a cohesive world in D and D next and have everything look similar. All right. So uh, also new on the sort of delivery truck, uh, we had the reprint of Unearthed Arcana. Yes. So that was essentially the really big rules expansion to AD and D first edition. So it was notorious for two things. One, and I say notorious, I mean these are like the downsides. Let's start with the downsides. At least as a D&D fan back on this game. Yeah, you want to build Because that's something. how you want to pitch yeah. something. Let's start with one. the negatives. Well, there are actually negatives that will become through the magic of modern publishing positives. That's right. So first, the binding was notoriously terrible. The that's books right. fell apart. I don't think I've seen an intact copy of Unearthed Arcana, mm. first edition. Second, there was Errata printed in Dragon. Uh, so that was always like even as a kid remembering. Oh yeah, you have to make sure you. Have, I forget what dragon issue it was, but make sure mm-hmm. you have that issue. And you need to stock it right next to your copy of UA. But look, this is my thing now. In the new version, it's corrected, so we've got new binding, mm-hmm. same quality as the AD&D reprints, and plus we have updated. We went back and applied the Dorada. So this is like, let's see, how many years ago did this book come out? Twenty-eight years later. Right. <laughs> God, I feel old. <laughs> Finally got the Errata. In. Yeah. Yes. We but we've added the Errata, and it's a corrected printing. So it's also, I have to admit, I really like the the cover design. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's pretty cool with the gold leaf on the corners, the original a piece of the original artwork the wizard peering over his book. And on the um, if you look at the spine, there's little symbols in gold mm-hmm. along each spine. So e- each of the four now AD&D rule books has a different sort of little symbol, it's a signature thing on the spine. Yeah, I was really excited to get our office copies of this because as a result of the old binding being so fragile, I had never been able to get my hands on a copy that wasn't completely destroyed, right? So getting these new office copies has been big for me because A, I, I never had one uh, previously, and then you know it's a it's a nice premium product. We put a lot of work into uh, relaying out the book, capturing mm-hmm. the text, trying to capture the art. It turns out they didn't have digital versions of these books back right. in the eighties. Uh, one thing that I find really interesting was uh, when you think of uh, Driss Jordan, the um, our uh, iconic draw ranger. He is actually a fully legal. AD&D character. That's like, right. Making a drow ranger, according to Unearthed Arcana, was not was not was not weird or bizarre or strange because by the rules, I'm looking right here at my character race table one, character rate class uh, limitations. And if I look down at ranger and look across to drow, I see or dark here in this table, I see a yes. Oh. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. I've never asked. Um, Bob Salvatore about that, but I always kind of wondered, did he just open up his rule books? Because when you think about the the, the Companions of the Hall, you have Wolfgar, who's also a barbarian, right. you know, and that's so I wonder if he was thinking, well, it's a barbarian character class. Mm-hmm. It's also where the Cavalier showed up, Thief mm-hmm. Acrobat, right. and uh, it was pretty nifty at the time, though I, it did have a reputation for for um, increasing the power level of characters. Right. And I don't think that really, I don't recall there being like a, a feeling that monsters were getting more powerful or adventures were getting tougher. I think it was just, these just seemed a little bit like a power up. Right. So it's kind of, divi- it was kind of divisive back then, like whether you embraced it or not. And like you say, it's one of the first books that really expanded the rules of AD&D a lot. So, I mean, that was just a, a big cultural thing. It's like, oh, here's new rules for this game. So speaking of reprints, uh, we also uh, announced that we are doing a reprint of the original um, Dungeons & Dragons set, the fabled white box. It's right, a premium reprint. Print. Have you ever played uh, D&D using those rules? 
Uh, so here, what did we use when we went through our big uh, tour de force of all editions? We used we we did play that game, right? We did. Okay, so yeah, because I I'm I'm definitely a child of second edition. That's when I started playing. Uh, so I didn't get to do this use those the first time they came out. But um, for those who haven't heard this, I was mentioning it on the podcast before. One of the things we did uh, in the ramp up to the start of design of D and D Next is we started out by playing every edition of D and D, and of course the first one we started with was apparently uh, White Box ODD. I, I only know that because you ran it. Yeah, so. it had the very like uh, straightforward. I mean, well, the rules looked simple because I read them and figured them out. They right. were confusing. I mean. Now, to be fair, this is the first time anyone had written a role-playing game. Right. So it wasn't like they could just pull a book off the shelf and use that as a starting point. Um, In fact, it was the first time many people had played a role-playing game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not like, you know, oh, yeah, I've played plenty of these kinds of games. I could design my own. It was inventing an entirely new genre. Oh, yeah. But the, the idea, the core idea shines through. It was, I mean, it was interesting running it and playing it because mm-hmm. to me it captures the essence of role-playing game, which is just you're depicting a fictional character right. in a world and there's a player, the dungeon master in this case, who adjudicates the world and just the game knows that it can't possibly cover everything. So it lets the DM, the DM has to create stuff. <laughs> there, there's a lot of letting the player and DM figure things out. Yeah. Uh, and it took me a while because I'm very used to, you know, modern even, uh, you know, calling second edition AD&D modern. I'm used to more modern role-playing games, which are very detailed in the rules and very, uh, the rules are laid out very precisely. And there were a lot of times where I'd be reading through the the white box and I would say, wait, what am I, what die am I supposed to roll here? Yeah. Like I didn't actually understand that all the weapons just use D6. Yeah, just use D6. Right? And so it took me a while to figure out, oh, okay, every weapon does one to six damage. And it's interesting how role play games have changed over the years. Mm-hmm. My personal feeling is that we have, I, I like precision in rules. Right. I like a rule, I read it, I know what the rule says. Clarity especially. But I think we trust in rules too much these days. Oh, yeah? I think we do. I think there is, when I look at a role-playing game that's a 300-page rule book, mm-hmm. to me that's, would how many people who are role-playing today, if you put them back in a time machine and replace their first game with a 300-page rule book, would they be role-playing today? Eh, there's certainly a barrier to entry there, and a, a, even a, just a perceived I, I think one. it's an enormous barrier to entry. Yeah. I think you'd lose half your audience or more. I mean, this is kind of my little bully pulpit. This is what we're doing a lot, we'll, and we'll segue into the playtest next. Right. But I think that's something where are the role-playing games in general, and now there are a lot of exceptions, don't get me wrong. Sure. But especially for Dungeons and Dragons, which is supposed to be the frontispiece of gaming, it's where everyone starts. Really, how many people can start these days? Like, can just come into Dungeons and Dragons cold and figure it out. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a reason why we say commonly people come into D&D through their friends. They come in by playing the game with their friends. And so very few people that I've ever played with, you know, oh, new guy's going to be in the group. Great. Hand him the 300-page manual and tell him to read that and then we'll play. No, it's usually just like, hey, come on, sit down. We'll play this game. And they talk you through it. They don't start – they they don't front load you with – giant manual of rules. But, but that's if you're lucky enough to have friends who sure. like play the game. How sure. many people out there, like we only hear that because like we're the, the people who have made it through that barrier were the people who had friends there to pull them through. Mm-hmm. How many people aren't playing because they couldn't get through, sure. they didn't know where to start. Sure. I mean, it, it is very, I, it's something that I really think about a lot because yeah. I think when you look at role playing as a hobby, I mean, 
the fundamental thing of the, of its appeal hasn't changed and hasn't been replaced. I mean, there are parts of it that have been replaced. Like you could say you could play an MMO, and if you just really want to, if you really enjoy leveling, you know, you can do that in a lot of different games. Sure, but a role playing game. If you just to say, hey, this it, all I'm going to tell you about this role playing game that you're about to play is that you get to level up. Like you'd like yeah. you'd be like, well, how many hours is this going to take? And do I really <laughs> is this really what I want to do? Right? You could well, no, I'd rather spend my time doing. How does else. grinding work in this pen yeah. and paper game? Exactly. No, right. Really, I mean, that'd be like leveling up is not an intrinsic part of what makes a role playing game a role playing yeah. game, right? It's the interactions, right? And it's the idea that it's people at the table. That's why we like to role play with our friends. Right. You know, we you know we talk, think about organized play and this idea of how do you get people to role play with strangers. It's like, how do you get people to sit down and eat dinner with strangers, right? Like, <laughs> there's a barrier there. It, it's, it's an intimate thing. Yeah. And it's, you know, you it's, there's the old saw in RPGs that it's not the system, it's the, it's the game master, the dungeon master, mm-hmm. the, the keeper, whatever right. you call it in your game. And I think that's true. I think at the end of the day, role-playing games are about people. Yeah. And it's about the people at the table. And when you think of the rules, the rules are really just there as a tool. And this is all stuff a lot of people would say, yeah, that's obvious. But I mean, when you're getting into it, the idea of a role-playing game, if you haven't played a tabletop one before, is so different and interesting that the concept alone and the people at the table are enough. You don't need all these meta rules and what about this and that and the design thing and how do you, what builder do you have? It's just so much and it just loses sight of what, actually gets most people to sit down and start role-playing. And then five, ten years later, you can talk about all the detailed stuff once you've been playing a lot and you're really into it. Sure. But I think we've lost that real entry piece. And clearly, that's what we're trying to right. to, to, to address with, with Next. Yeah, when you talk about product, sure, absolutely. And and uh, there's programs like you know, D&D Encounters is a reason why we provide you with the pre-generated characters, right? Yeah. It's so that if someone walks up to the table, you can say, okay, here's your guy, and it's got a picture of a character on it, and you sit down and you play an adventure, right? We don't sit down and necessarily teach you the rules. Yeah. The important part is sit down and play quickly so that you can see what's awesome about role-playing games. Well, it's about hanging out with other people and having a you know great adventure and telling a fun story and unexpected things popping up and discovering the world What's great about role-playing games isn't, you know, like here's the rule book, right? Yeah. It's it's the experience. It's a very it's a very experiential game. You could memorize all the rules and completely miss the point of the game. Yeah. You could know the rules inside and out, apply them flawlessly and be the worst dungeon master on the planet. Right. You know, and that's that's the kind of secret to, I think to role-playing games why they're actually interesting, why people still play them. Right. Why it took off in the 70s like wildfire, right? Is when you when you exposed a group of people to role-playing, some chunk of them wanted to role play right you know it, it's likely it's it's not like it's not the same as like a smartphone where just everyone wants a smartphone or whatever but it's like there is a type of person who wants to use this this type of game and play it yeah and it spawned all kinds of other games that are like that right i mean you look at any kind of storytelling game or any kind of storytelling board game or even uh, party games like werewolf or whatever many of those did not exist at the time oh, yeah. that that Gygax and Arneson were creating the original Dungeons and Dragons so i think it definitely does tap into a a need that people had in their entertainment which is yeah. i want to experience something with my friends in a social setting that is creative and we're experiencing a story exactly and that's why i think when you look at the original white box if you haven't looked at the rules the rules are the rules vary from sparse to very detailed to it's not really clear what the rules trying to do <laughs> the but again it's not it's easy to look back but you know we, we have experience how to look at it but i think without 
that level of freedom, sparseness of rules in terms of what characters can do. Like yeah. fighters don't have attack powers. They just they just swing their sword. Right. Uh, clerics don't have many spells. The, the wizard spell lists aren't very low. Magic user spell lists, I'm right. sorry. There's no, there's no- Rogues don't even exist yeah, yet. <laughs> they're not even there in the game yet. I think that that is what let the game succeed. Sure. Well, I there's think, a reason why people still play OD&D oh, to yeah. this day, right? Because they got an experience out of that that they like and they want to keep having that experience, right? Yeah. It's still- I mean, we maybe don't play that ourselves anymore, but there are plenty of people out there that are enjoying, you know, a, a an OD and D experience because, like, whatever, we don't need the rules. We're here for the role play. The role playing. Yeah. We're here for, and even like the most, uh, you know, we always think like I've talked a lot about story, right? But you think about a dungeon crawl, like, ah, uh, you know, we just have disposable characters in a dungeon crawl. Even in that situation, a story comes out of it, right? Yeah. What happens at the table is the story. Right? Exactly. And I think if you had more procedural rules in the first role-playing game, the first big commercial role-playing game, I'm sure some, someone out there is like, oh, there are other role-playing games. I'm sure there were. Yeah. But Dungeons & Dragons was the first as far as like culturally, you know, sure. that had them impact. That openness was the strength of the game. Mm-hmm. And it still is the strength of the game form. Yeah. And I think you lose something when you get too worried about the rules and, and all that other stuff that comes with it. Which is maybe an interesting segue into the DNA next yes. playtest. Now let's talk about rules. <laughs> <laughs> or really, and, and in some ways, the um, I mean, we've talked about this with, with with next. If you were to you know, if you were to look at the rules, like this is really one of the big things of the game is to create that transition point right. where someone can just buy a game called Dungeons and Dragons and start role playing. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's where I go back to the lesson of the white box. And that's what's really important for us is to is to make sure we have that out there because right. I think role playing is a is a is a great hobby. I mean, obviously. It's my hobby. <laughs> right. yeah. Not that I own it, but that's what I do. But the, uh, but it's a uh, it's a hobby that is uh, it's worth spreading and it's worth sharing. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. I I was reading online. Someone I'll come here a couple weeks ago said, you know, uh, some forum or some blog post. Can't remember now which one it was, but it's like, what's the point of growing D anD D? Who cares? Like, if you have, a, and this person wasn't acting like in an angry way. They're just wondering right. they, if you have a gaming group, why does it matter to you that you want more people to role play? And I think just as people, as human beings, we're sort of hardwired to want to share things. Mm-hmm. Like we like this and we like knowing that other people out there like mm-hmm. it. It gives you a little confidence in thinking about it, but it also kind of gives you the sense of there's an enduring legacy to it. Like mm-hmm. when you sit back and think, oh, what's the point of doing this? Well, you're part of something bigger. Right. People like being something part of something bigger. And I think when you feel like something that you like is getting smaller, that it's not as enjoyable. Like you kind of feel like, am I irrelevant? Is this important? Is, mm-hmm. is this been diminished? And I think, you know, one of the things we look at with Next is saying, what can we do to grow it? What can right. we do to make sure we're driving in the right direction that everyone who wants to play a tabletop role-playing game can. Everyone right. who wants to go on fantasy adventures in the Forgotten Realms can, you know, things right. like that. Yeah. I think there's something really, uh, there's also an element of I play games now. I have a gaming group now, but you know, ten years from now, are my kids going to have a gaming group to play with? Yeah, uh, I mean, because obviously they're going to have me because I'm going to teach my kids how to play D and D. But you know, are they going to have people at their school that are going to know how to play, or when they go off to college, or even, hey, I got a new job and I'm moving across the country and leaving yeah. my game group behind. Oh, and I go there, and there are people that play D and D there. There's it's funny when we first moved to Seattle uh, just over six years ago now uh, my my girlfriend who's now my fiance at the time uh, she asked me how it was that two weeks into moving from Tennessee to Seattle I had already made 
two full gaming groups worth of friends and already had, you know, a weekly game, actually two weekly games because I joined your weekly That's game right. as well, right? You know, basically two weeks in, I've already got uh, two weekly games and we've got all kinds of invitations to, you know, parties and hangouts and stuff like that. She asked me, how do you do that? I said, well, because I have a hobby that is inherently social, yes. right? And I have a hobby that, you know, I arrive out here and I can say, hey, I like D&D. And someone else says, I like D&D too. We should be friends, yeah. right? It also helps you, you, worked, you worked at Wizards of the Coast. It does, <laughs> it does help that. But I mean, even in any new work environment where I, I knew, you know, a few people here, uh, I knew people here via email, yeah. right? I, we don't didn't hang out very much, right? Even then, I was able to basically jump right into a social scene because I had a, a common bond with them. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, go back to the, the sitting down at the table and having experiences. That's why D&D is so awesome is because I can have those experiences with my gaming group. And then when I go somewhere else, those people have had similar experiences. And so we've had similar experiences together. Yeah. So playtest. Yes, we should probably yeah. talk about that. Actually. So what's what's new? What do we got? Wow. Okay. So internally, we're testing a lot of things that will soon be, uh, I will say soon with the air quotes around it, soon be heading out into the wilds. Uh, we've been working a lot on the Paladin and the Ranger and the Druid. Those are sort of our three big focuses. We have some other things like we've been working on a few of the other uh, races and some revisions to the math behind the game, etc. But the big sort of content pieces are the Paladin, the Ranger, and the Druid. And uh, it's funny because... Two of those classes, I would say, fell into place very, very easily. Like we, we immediately knew, what is this class going to do? Well, they're going to do exactly what they've always done. We're just going to make sure it all works together well. Um, and even, you know, I say two of the three, I would say the the Druid and the, the Paladin were probably the two easiest words. Like, okay, we know what these guys are going to do. And then even the Ranger, very easy to say, what does this guy need to be able to do and adapt that quickly? Whereas, yeah. I mean, they're, they're classes that have been very consistent over the years, right? And while, you know, you might look at, say, the third edition Druid and say, okay, wow, this guy was really, really powerful – we still wanted to be able to do the same kinds of things. So a lot of it was just like, okay, how do we do this in a way that works with the game that we have right now? So those are the classes we're working on. Yes. What about now, uh, I'll bring up a character class you, that might not actually be a class. So since Jeremy's not here, mm-hmm. you're doing this to me to put me on the spot. Yeah, exactly, right? Okay. Right? It's my job. Because usually you put Jeremy on the yeah, spot. Yeah, I like putting Jeremy, but he's sick. He has the flu, so. That's true. He has the flu that I gave him, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so we're looking at, um, there are some classes that you will be able to play a character of that type and not necessarily have the character class name on your character sheet. Okay. Because one of the things we said back in the day was we want you to be able to play all the – if it's appeared in a player's handbook, it's yep. going to appear in this player's handbook. Yep. But That was we, a goal. Right? We were always, but we're always careful not to say it's a character class. Right. Right? Because yep. we knew that – and I'm going to use an example. I'm going to talk about the Warlord. Okay. Which is, can be a contentious subject both internally and externally. Yeah. But when you look at the Warlord, so right now we're looking at the Warlord as a type of fighter. Is that correct? That's one of the things we're experimenting with right now. Yeah. And and it's a more complex issue like you bring up because the Warlord class in, in 4th edition is a dash of fighter in that he was a very martial guy. He wore heavy armor. He used weapons. So there's a dash of fighter. And then there's a, a hefty sprinkling of uh, healing. Yeah, the, kind of the bard, really. Yeah. It's inspiring. Very, very bard-esque there. And... Uh, then there's the, 
I don't have a catch-all term for all of his other leadership abilities, but things like action granting and throwing out uh, bonuses and buffs and things like that. Basically, a a heavy support role. I guess it's really in tactically, like tactical. Yeah, cunning. tactical support. I yeah. think is what I would say. And it's tricky because the class is really and it is not. It's really tricky with classes like the Warlord. And I think when we've looked at the system overall, we've we've run into this a few times. The class isn't really an expression of like a character in the world of D&D that we felt, hey, this guy needs a home. It was more, we have a system. We can make the system do this, so now we're going to do this. It's kind of like the, the genesis of the sorcerer in 3rd edition where mm-hmm. it was just, here's a different way to use all the spells yeah. in the book. It wasn't really like, oh, there are, here's a character who's always been in D&D in a prominent place that hasn't been expressed as a class yet. Yeah, although I will say this, uh, thinking back to the the proto-warlord, the marshal from 3rd uh, edition, yeah. the marshal, I think, was uh, a, an attempt to do something sort of tactical like that. But also, um, the leader character is something that you know you would say, okay, the party's leader is the person who's the most charismatic yeah. or something like that. Like there was – there's always been kind of a, a vague archetype out there for the the leader character. But it's – but, but leader it, – it, it wasn't necessarily the guy who's the tactical guy. Yeah, or it's not necessarily the guy who was in charge because I think most gaming groups would rebel at the idea of, oh, this guy is in charge of us. Like, right. I think that's why you like being right. adventurers. No one's the boss of me, right? right? Like, But yeah, so it's so sort of interesting. So from what I can gather, like, you know – we're looking at the the warlord. We've basically decided let's focus on the tactical cunning aspect, mm. which would be something that would make sense in the fighter, because then you can also imagine building fighters with a dash of that right. without multi-classing. Right. And that's the big thing too. You know, I said that the the warlord was kind of an amalgamation of those previous classes. If you look at say, let's say we were to build a warlord by itself, right? It would look a lot like the fighter in in the, the early designs that we've done. And we have experimented with, okay, here's what the class would look like and here's what the specialty would look like, et cetera. So we've been all over the place with this. But if you looked at it, it, it kind of looked a lot like the fighter, right? And it wanted to do a lot of the things that the fighter does because the warlord in fourth is a frontline leader. I mean, unless you take the, the you know, archer build from Martial Power 2 or whatever, yeah. right? He is a frontline guy, so he wanted to do a lot of the things that the the frontline fighter did. So we're experimenting with a version of the fighter that instead of choosing uh, things that necessarily make your attacks better, yeah, your or, combat maneuvers, yeah, your own combat maneuvers better, things that let you let other people do things or enhance the things that they do. Now it's a again that's that's part of it, right? Because then there's also the you know, the healing aspect of it, which is a whole different kettle yeah, of fish. And, and I think my big thing is, would you, in the world of Dungeons & Dragons, if you pictured a guy who was a cunning tactical leader, would you expect that guy to heal you? I wouldn't expect him to automatically be the guy that heals me. But I could see a a that character who is more of a, you know, a field medic type guy as he well. He could be a healer. Yeah, he could be. I'm not saying right. he yeah. is. In which we're, when, we're and, and that's throughout the system, right? And we have a specialty yeah. that lets you pick up some healing abilities. Yeah, we're going to want to continue to, to yeah. expand that but, too. But we don't expect the sergeant of the guard or the captain of the guard to heal down warriors, right? right? That's not the default. And I think that's kind of the thing, which, and, and then if you just say, well, he can heal because he's really, he's really inspiring presence, well, then you've just kind of described a bard. 
Because bards, the entire steel of the bard is they're inspiring and it's they're their charismatic and the bard is the guy with panache who onward, right? Like that's the bard's deal, isn't it? Or, yeah, that's, that's a big part of the yeah. one, I would say. I think there's um, there's some desire for a, like when you're playing that leader character to be able to say, all right, men, you know, fight on and we're going to, you know, lead the, be the guy leading the charge, yeah. right? To be to be uh, William Wallace from Braveheart, yeah. right? Like you want to be that guy and that I, I wouldn't, in, I would not describe a William Wallace type character as a bard. Yeah. So, but but but, but, not, you, but you also wouldn't say he's a healer. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think yeah. of like if there's a guy who's been gutted. William Wallace like gets the guys to freak out and charge or moon the British. Well, but is he healing? If a guy's yeah. a broken arm, does William Wallace like? I mean, <laughs> well, he, William Wallace clearly uh, went and you know inspired the guy who got his hand cut off to keep fighting. Yeah, right. I mean, there there's that you know. But his it, hand didn't grow back. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm being a little. No, it, obtuse, it was in a cutscene. Obviously, yeah, it was a cutscene. Literally a cutscene. Yeah, the cutscene uh, and then the uncut scene. scene. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I, anyways, to to bring it back to the warlord, I think that there is a. I think there is, you know, a focus that we're trying to take, you know, we talk about the warlord uh, being in the fighter on being the tactical leader guy. And then I think that if you want to play very much the fourth edition warlord, we should have a way for you to build that character. Yeah, right? yeah. And we it do. is like take the fighter, take the the tactical leadery fighter and apply, you know, a specialty or healing specialty or something. Yeah, a healer that's specialty. That's like just like the one piece that's just not quite right. there. And, and again, you know, we are continuing to, like I talked about the three classes we're adding. We're going to continue to add feeds and specialties and stuff like that until we get the right mix of things. Yeah. So I, I could see in, you know, down the road, one of the things we might do is uh, a different take on, you know, the healer specialty that basically says, okay, I've got fighter, you know, leadery guy and I smack on this healer, uh, you know, ability and now I'm getting warlordy. Yeah, that's interesting because you, you could imagine any character could be an inspiring battlefield presence mm -hmm. that to some extent, mm -hmm. just like we have, you can take a specialty and get some light arcane ability. You yeah. can take a specialty and take some... Uh, some divine ability. This is almost like this is what this is like. Our, this is our our, our feet based bard type ability. Like I am just I really charismatic, yeah. and I can inspire people through my words. And that's kind of bardic. Yeah, but I guess that's what it really comes back to is that's really it's a very bardic thing to be yeah. the guy. Like there's a line between, and that's why I kind of like you know between ins inspiration and tactical cunning. And I think the where it settles for me is the fighter can be tactically cunning mm -hmm. as a fighter. Like that's something that's uniquely fighter. You know, and that's that's what you've chosen to, to to double down on. If you're, hey, I'm the inspiring figure, that feels like a bard to me. That that's that's yeah. what the bard does. Yeah, I think embracing the idea that the fighter is a, you know, he is sort of the the lord of battle, right? He is the guy that you want on the battlefield. That can manifest a couple of ways. It could be, you know, I'm just going to tear through the bad guys with my giant great axe, or it could be, you know, we want him here because he he leads us and he shows us the right tactical options to take yeah. and stuff like that. I think that's a a great expression of the fighter, in fact. And so, you know, seeing that combined with, uh, you know, other like I, I could see us, you know, talk about a specialty that is inspiring and everything like that. I could see you building this fighter and then taking some of that specialty as well. Yeah. So if you want to really be the guy like, yeah, okay. I, you know, I, I liked warlords that, you know, gave out a lot of benefits and, and buffs and, you know, action granting and stuff like that. I could see that being very much in the inspiring 
the inspiring guy uh, specialty. Yeah. Right. Inspiring I don't, guy. I, yeah, I don't exactly. have a name for it yet, but you know, that's okay. I've got that. And that I, might actually just be the leader specialty. Yeah. If we don't have a leader specialty already. We do game. not. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We kicked one around before, but yeah. Like, we had talked about taking the roles from fourth and just making those specialties. Yeah. Like, so it's like, oh, we have, I mean, we have a defender specialty right yeah, now, which right. does a lot of very defender yeah. things. Right. I could, and I think that's another sort of exciting thing that we're doing with our specialties is that I could take my cleric and give him the leader specialty once, you know, once we have one, right? Yeah. Um, right now you could take a cleric and give him the defender specialty and he works great, right? Yeah. And I think that that's one of those things where we have disentangled, you know, some of the, the things that we think of as what you do in the game from necessarily who you are in the world as much. Yeah. Uh, so, I yeah, I, I can definitely see you, you know, building your buff and action granting focused uh, warlord with fighter ta- choosing the tactical options plus leader specialty right or you know a mix of the two right fighter with tactical options plus half of the leader specialty plus half of the healer specialty yeah. right i mean that's we want to be flexible here so that if you want to focus on healing you can if you want to focus on buffing and leadership you can if you if you want to do something totally different you can, right? You could be the tactical guy that takes the defender specialty, right? And I think that's interesting too because, you know, I get right in the thick of things and I protect my friends while they follow my tactical orders and stuff too. Yeah. I think there's something exciting there about this sort of hybrid approach as well. Well, I think that's the big – if you ask me personally what I think has been the big improvement to D&D over the years – going, hey, let's loop back to the white box sure. today, is I do like, I, I believe that if you were to go back in time to, probably not 1981, I was six when I first was exposed <laughs> to D&D, but I was a little bit young and I really started to play D&D, like actually play it using like, the, starting with the red box and going to mm-hmm. AD&D. I think I would have seen like, hey, I can customize my character. So I'm not just, you know, I can remember playing an elf fighter or right. just carrying a bow and but I still wore plate mail because that was the best armor. Mm-hmm. Even though part of me was like, "Well, that's a little lame." I kind of want a guy who's more of a outdoorsy guy, mm-hmm. but it makes sense, and I don't want to get killed. <laughs> right. But being able to say, "Hey," in the modern, in the in the latest iteration of D anD D, whether it's you know third, fourth, and second had this with kits, right. but you know you can make a character and you can back that up with mechanics. I think right. that is a step forward for the game mm-hmm. because I think people like, especially when you've played a couple campaigns, you like the mm-hmm. idea of I can make a really unique character. Yeah. And I think that's a big advantage of the tabletop game versus a digital game where, yeah. I mean, you can play uh, even, even the most sandboxy kind of uh, role-playing, digital role-playing sure. games. You're still restricted to what's on the slider mm-hmm. in terms of what you decide to do. Whereas with D&D, like we can, we can present more feats. I mean, I don't want to flood the game. And I think that's something which is going to – sure will probably be a big change for people once we actually start producing next products is we really don't want to do a lot of mechanics. Mm-hmm. When we do mechanics, we want them to be – be important. Right. Like we're not just making a new feat for the sake of making a new feat. And right. this kind of ties to the specialty and background thing. Right. We're doing it because, hey, there's a new character or a character that is not yet available in the system mm-hmm. that we want to make possible. Right. We're not just going to, hey, we need 20 feats. It's, it's, and I think it goes back to the specialty thing. It's not just a bunch of feats. It's there are three or four new types of characters you can build exactly. that the rules wouldn't let you do before. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think that's big. And I think really when you look at you know, you're talking about being able to back up your character idea with mechanics. My sort of idealized world, the world I want to live in that we're working towards, I think, right now in, in Next is I can build a character that 
my idea for the character is backed up with the mechanics and does very satisfying things. And it does all those things in a way that gets completely out of the way of me during the game session, right? Yeah. Like that, you know, the, the objective in my mind is design game mechanics that do what you want them to do. And they do it so fluidly and easily that you kind of forget about it. Right. And so it's more about, okay, what are we doing right now? What are we focusing on? you know, in, in the world, in the adventure. Oh yeah. And I do all the awesome stuff that I wanted to be able to do seamlessly. Exactly. That's that's my goal. Well, that wraps up our podcast for this week. Uh, Thanks to Rodney for stopping by. Uh, Thanks for Chris Dupuy for being part of our earlier uh, segments. And thanks as usual to Bart Carroll for pulling this all together and running all the technological end of things. I'm your host, Mike Merles. Well, I'm your host for this week. Uh, We'll see what happens (laughs) with the next podcast. All right, good gaming and talk to you next time.